Amen. If you have a Bible, you will want to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. And whoever's running the slide, can we put that page number for the Blue Pew Bibles? Because page 961, because I don't write it down. I probably should do that at some point in time. Uh, Yeah, as I have said uh, earlier, we are in week three of four in this series in 1 Corinthians 15. So next week will be the last uh, time that uh, I'll get to be preaching in this particular book. While you're turning there, I want to tell you a story about a young woman that on July 30th, 1967, a 17-year-old woman named Joni Erickson Tata dove headfirst into the Chesapeake Bay for a summer swim. However, after misjudging the shallowness of the water, what resulted was Joni suffering a fracture between the fourth and fifth cervical vertebrae. And because of that fracture, she became a quadriplegic, which means that she was paralyzed from the shoulders down. Joni is alive today and doing honestly very well. Uh, She's bound, however, to a wheelchair for the rest of her life. And despite bouts of depression, anger, and even suicidal thoughts, Joni's persevering faith in Jesus Christ, it's been an incredible example to many. If you ever have a chance, she's written a number of books that really could be just very encouraging to anybody that's struggling in their walk in Christ. But she really is an incredible woman, and especially her faith in Jesus Christ is an incredible aspect of her. I mean... I'm going to read this quote here in just a moment, and you're going to kind of see the kind of faith that she has. Uh, She says in one of her works, she says, I grew up in a little church where Sunday worship was serious business. Our church had kneelers, and if you don't know what those are, they're things that fold down from uh, traditional church pews, and you would kneel down on them uh, to pray. Um, That Her church that she grew up in uh, had kneelers. When they confessed their sins together, they all got down on their knees to, to pray and to confess their sins. But after I, being Joni, broke my neck, all that changed. Never again would I kneel. And I really miss it. It's why I so look forward to heaven when I will finally rise on resurrected legs. And you know what's the first thing I'm going to do? Drop down on grateful, glorified knees. I'll finally get the chance to kneel again at the feet of my Savior. My physical posture will be an outward expression of my worshipful heart. How does somebody that has lived that many years, I mean, we're talking almost now uh, 70, if my math is right? No, that's not right. 40, 50, almost 60 years. Here we go. 60 years of being a quadriplegic. How can somebody that has lived that kind of life with all the suffering and all the uh, bodily damage that she's endured, how can somebody say such a thing like that? That I can't wait until I'm on resurrected legs so I can just bend them. How, how does somebody say that? I think what Joni says in this statement is something that Christians today, they don't even realize at times that this is a reality for us in heaven. We will have resurrected bodies. We will be new creations as Jesus Christ brings the new creation in resurrection. And this is going to be the idea that we explore in this section of 1 Corinthians 15 in verses 35 through 49 this morning. In the new heavens and in the new earth that Jesus brings at the end of the age, we will have new resurrected bodies. And today we will see that resurrection matters because one day we also will have resurrected bodies. So read along with me in 1 Corinthians 15 starting in verse 35. 
Paul says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is the word of the Lord, and praise be to God for it. The main idea this morning that we are going to be getting after in this passage is very simple. Resurrection matters because we will be resurrected bodily. Resurrection matters to us right now here in the 21st century as 21st century Christians. It matters to us because we will be resurrected bodily. And what we're going to be doing in this sermon is asking these two questions that Paul raises for us in verse 35. And those are going to serve as kind of the two points of the sermon as well. We are going to be answering these two questions. How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? So we're going to be answering those two questions. And ultimately what we're going to see um, is that they're going to be raised bodily. And they're going to be unlike anything that we've ever seen or known before. So, let's answer and seek to know the answer of this first question. How are the dead raised? Which I think we see in verses 36 through 41. I want to let you know, up at the forefront, the general answer to this question, how are the dead raised? Uh, Paul's answer is just very simply, the dead are raised with a body. Um, and it's different than an earthly body. That's kind of the general answer that he wants to give you right from the outset. That the dead will be raised with a body that is different than their earthly body. 
Prior to our passage this morning, Paul has already answered the the question theologically or biblically, how are the dead raised? We've been going over that the last couple of weeks. How biblically can somebody be raised back to life? And we've answered and found and seen that because Jesus was raised to life, those who place their faith and trust in him can also be raised to life as well. But in typical Paul fashion, he already knows the objections and questions that are going to come for these people that have been making this claim that there is no resurrection of the dead. He's been saying, if there is resurrection of the dead because Christ has been raised, some of you are going to say, well, how are the dead raised? And what kind of body do they come? I'm sure that there's someone in the church in Corinth that he's probably thinking of personally. I have to imagine these questions are so specific that he can probably hear their voice in their head saying, okay, hold on, Paul. But if they've been dead, and they've been in a grave, and they've been doing what dead people do in a grave, decomposing, aren't their bodies going to be kind of gross? Like, how are they going to be raised back to life? How exactly are they going to be raised if their bodies have been corrupted from being in this dead state? And I think that's why we see Paul respond so emphatically in verse 36 with, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Paul will elaborate on this idea in the following verses, but just as Jesus was resurrected with an actual body, it's a foolish idea to think that if Jesus was our forerunner, the one that we will copy in the resurrection, it's a foolish idea to think that if his body was glorified and raised back to life in an uncorrupted state, it's a foolish notion to think that our bodies as well won't follow that pattern. There are differences in the resurrected body and the earthly body. That's what we're going to be getting at. But nonetheless, we will have a resurrected body, just as Jesus had a resurrected body. Luke, the the gospel writer and companion of Paul, he records his account of Jesus' appearance after his resurrection to his disciples in Luke 24. And, And you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read this to you, but... Jesus appears to his disciples after he's been resurrected. And Luke records and says that Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. So Luke wants us to know and see that whenever the disciples saw Jesus resurrected, they thought he was a spirit. But Jesus responds and he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see me. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, And he took it before them and ate before them. So what Luke is expressing here is that Jesus, knowing these disciples and how they've never seen a resurrected person in their life before, and they see this resurrected Jesus, and all they can think of is that he's a spirit. And Jesus, in his kindness, what does he tell them? He says, actually, look at my body. Touch my resurrected body. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bone as I do. And then I think Luke and, and I don't know who he interviewed to get this aspect, but he tells us that 
not only did he let his disciples touch him and see him, but that he shared a meal with them because spirits don't eat, but a physical body does. But as we know, because Paul has been proclaiming this to this church in Corinth, they've had a hard time believing this. There's still some who claim that there is no resurrection of the dead. In an effort to help, Paul gives them a couple of illustrations to see that this resurrected body, one, that it is indeed a body, is different than the dead earthly body they are thinking of. So Jesus' resurrected body, while it did have the holes from the nails in his hands and feet, he had uh, a point in his body where the spear had thrust him through, it was still a different body. It wasn't the same as his earthly body. And Paul wants to sympathize with them here a little bit and show them, hey, there's actually a, a principle for this that I'm going to show you in just natural creation that you're going to see. So first he says in verses 37 through 38, he says, And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, into each kind of seed its own body. This idea of sowing a body, I think throughout the passage, is Paul's reference to somebody dying. That's the idea here of what he's saying in sowing. If you are a farmer at all, if you've ever planted anything, uh, whenever you sow something, that means you're putting it in the ground. And so Paul's idea here is that something has to die, something has to be sown in order for it to be raised. But if you die, the body you bury in the grave or sow, as Paul is saying here, it's not the resurrected body. The body that we put down in the ground of our beloved friends and family members is not like the resurrected body, but rather, as Paul says, it is like a kernel or a seed. I mean, we all know this, right? What we bury in the soil, it ends up being something totally different than what we have planted. I don't know when this happened for you, but I'm sure maybe in kindergarten or first grade, we learned this concept, didn't we? We got a little plastic Dixie cup, and we put some soil into it, and then we uh, dug a little hole with our finger, put that seed in there, covered it up with dirt, put some water in it, and then I, I don't even know what plant they gave us, but after a few days, uh, all of a sudden it just grew, right? It, that seed that we put in the ground became this awesome plant. And what we see is something totally different than what we actually put into the ground. And then what Paul says to add to the uniqueness and diversity, there's different types of seed that grow up into different types of crops. You don't plant a a corn kernel, for example, and expect to bear fruit of a banana, right? We don't expect a banana tree to spring up from a corn kernel. But instead, we we hope to see a corn stalk with, with, you know, cobs of corn growing on it. So I think the idea here is what we're seeing is that Paul's saying, All of our bodies are different. God has given us each a unique body. And whenever those bodies are sown or whenever they die, they will be resurrected into different bodies. But yet, at the same time, they will still be you. So, for example, if I were to die and be buried, we should expect that my resurrected body will be recognizable as Tanner. I I would hope to see uh, my wife in the resurrection and she would be able to say, Ah, that's Tanner. But there is something different about Tanner, right? Because I'll be resurrected. My body will be different. And just as Jesus was recognized as Jesus after his resurrection, 
so will the same be for us in our resurrected bodies as well. And the same is going to be true for all of us that have placed our faith and hope in Jesus Christ after they die and resurrect. We will be able to look at our beloved friends and family members in the faces and we'll be able to say, ah, that's this person. That's my grandpa Blosser. That's my husband or wife that I lost. This is my friend that I lost. You will still be you, but in a different, glorious, resurrected kind of way. The second way that Paul wants to make this clear that the resurrected body is different than the earthly body is by saying that look at the diversity of flesh or the differences between the bodies of humans, animals, birds, and fish. If there are differences between these kind of fleshes or bodies, then we should expect that there will be a difference between the earthly body and the resurrected body. So just as I could hold a fish and say, this is not human, and I could point to my face and say, this is human, Paul is saying that the resurrected body, as let's say I resurrected and was somehow able to stand next to my earthly body, you'd be able to say, that one is the resurrected body, and the other one, that's an earthly body. Paul is saying, because of the diversity of flesh that we see just in general creation, we're going to be able to know, oh yes, there obviously should be a resurrected body. If there are differences between these kinds of flesh or bodies, then we should expect that there's going to be a difference between our resurrected body and the earthly body. Paul goes on to say, making this clear, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies in verse 40. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star and glory. I think this is a really just brilliant argument from Paul. He says, just as you can look at the sun, the moon, and the stars, and know that they are different in one another from brightness and in purpose. We know that the sun exists to give us heat of the day and to tell us when we need to go to bed and when we need to rise. You can know that the same will be different for the earthly and the resurrected body. You will be able to look at the resurrected body and say, ah, its purpose here is going to be different than the earthly body. One commentator remarked on this passage, even stars are not interchangeable. Each has its own position in brightness or magnitude. Thus, one star differs from another star in splendor or in glory. That is, in what it gives its particular weight or impressive capacity to be what God requires of it. Friend, I don't know if you realize this, and many of you perhaps are suffering in this earthly body that you're given now. But I want you to think about, just for a moment, the way that Paul is talking about your earthly body right now. He's saying that your earthly body is glorious. Your earthly body, in many ways, still shines his radiance and his creative power over you. Now, mind you, whenever I started losing a little hair here at age 16, I started to question if that was really true. But the reality is, is that even in our fallen bodies, affected by the result of sin, it still gives God glory. And he goes on to say there's a different kind of glory that the resurrected body will give as well. And we're going to be getting into that a little bit later. But friend, your body right now that God has given you, with all the gray hairs, with all the sore knees, perhaps even with some of the disability that it has in it, is still glorious to God. He values it because he made it. 
the earthly body we have and the one that we bury, it serves a purpose in how it glorifies God. Friend, you may be here struggling with your identity of how God made you. I want to let you know that God is serving a purpose in how he created you. He's delighted in how he's created you. But the resurrected body, it has a different purpose that will actually shine brighter God's glory to God. What I find interesting in this argument from Paul is that he doesn't discount, right? He doesn't just negate the earthly body at all for us, but seems to reaffirm its purpose by its own unique splendor that it's created in, in the way that God is glorified in it. Friends, our, our bodies, while corrupted by sin in different ways, they're still used by God to glorify himself. I wonder if you actually think about this at all. God cares now how you use and how you treat your body because it's meant to shine the splendor of the one who created it. God cares about the way that you eat, the way that you walk, the way that you run. God cares about those things. It doesn't matter if you're 2, 12, 22, 42, 62, or even 102. God is meant to be glorified in how you use and treat the body that he gives you. Maybe a good question after lunch uh, today is to ask one another how you are using your body. How are you treating your body? And is it being used and is it being treated in a way that glorifies and honors God? Because God can still get glory from it because he created it. And the reality is that if God can be and is glorified by our earthly corrupted bodies, if that's the reality, knowing if you were to just make a list, even right now, you probably have a mental list going of like, well, this thing is wrong with it and all these other things as well. If God can be glorified in those bodies, then how much more will he be glorified in our resurrected bodies that are different than our earthly body? So I think what we need to do now is, is look at this resurrected body in the second point, which answers the second question. With what kind of body do they come? With what kind of body do they come? Meaning, what will our resurrected bodies be like in verses 42 through 49? As we look through these verses, I, I see five different characteristics that Paul makes about the resurrected body. So we're going to start by looking first at verse 42. And Paul says, so is it, meaning the earthly body is different than the resurrected body in glory, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. So the first thing that we see that our resurrected bodies are like is that it is imperishable. Imperishable. I think it's pretty straightforward, but the resurrected body, it's unable to perish, as in it will not have the damaging effect of sin. Very simply, our resurrected bodies cannot die. Whenever you are resurrected, the chance of you dying ever again, gone. What Paul is getting at here, though, it's so much deeper than, than never again dealing with aging or physical incapability or even illness. He is saying that the earthly body, it's actually corruptible. It's able to be manipulated in an evil way. But this resurrected body, it's incorruptible, totally incapable of sin and its consequences. Friend, can you wrap your mind around that for a moment? Your body 
And I think what Paul is referring to here isn't just like your flesh and your bone. He's referring to your whole person. It will be incapable of sin. Your new resurrected body will never smell, hear, taste, touch, or feel the effects of the fall ever again. Think about that. The the smelliest thing that you've ever smelled, gone. The ache in your knee, gone. Even in our emotions and mental faculties, our resurrected bodies will be totally free of worry, free of sadness, free of depression, free of grief. And I could go on and on of all the things that our resurrected bodies will be imperishable from. Just as an earthly body will die and be buried, so will all the damages of sin be buried and gone forever. Think about that. What we see in verse 43 in the first half uh, there is we see that the body is, the resurrection body is glorious. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. So it's glorious. Our resurrected body will be glorious. Our bodies that die, they dishonor God. Why? Because they're the constant reminder to him and to us that the power of sin is still present. The curse is still here. While we may bury our beloved friends and family with the hope of Jesus, we all know whenever we have to do that, we know that there's something not right about that. We know that there's something wrong by placing a person that has been buried in the ground, that's been created in the image of God. We know that something about that is not right. We can have as much hope in Jesus Christ as we want, but we feel deep in our soul that something's just not perfect here. But the bodies that God raises back in life, they are glorious. Why? Because they will give praise and glory to God just by their very appearance, just by their existing. Friend, what we do whenever we bury somebody is remind ourselves that that person still has the curse of the fall upon them. But whenever they're raised, they're raised in a glorious way, glorifying God in a way that our earthly bodies cannot They're glorious not only because they will not die, but they are glorious because they will finally display God's glory and they will appear attractive in ways that are so indescribably beautiful and so indescribably amazing that only God will be able to get the glory and praise. The first time I held my daughter, I couldn't imagine something so beautiful, so perfect. She was so lovely to me. As you all know, she's two years old. That's waned a little bit. (laughs) But I still love her so much, and, and I still think she's so beautiful. But I can remember the first time holding her, feeling her skin against mine, and thinking, there's nothing more beautiful and perfect than this. And some of you know what I mean, if you've ever been a parent, what that feeling is of first laying eyes on our children. But Paul is saying here that our appearance in the resurrection, that feeling that we get whenever we hold that newborn child that seems so perfect and so beautiful, our resurrection bodies will be even more beautiful, even more perfect, giving God more praise than even that little beautiful baby. 
The second thing that we see in, in, in the second half of verse 43 is that our resurrection bodies will be powerful. They'll be powerful. The earthly body is sown or it dies in weakness. Our earthly body buried in the ground, it, it's, it's a picture of decay. You and I know this, right? Especially as I'm approaching my 30s, for some reason, if I sleep the wrong way, every once in a while, my back will hurt. Whether it's a painful twinge in our backs from sitting the wrong way or, or not being as fast or as strong as we want, even the smallest cold, guys on my right, even the smallest cold knocking us out for a couple of days, it's tough. We know that our bodies are decaying. It shouldn't be like this. We, we can't recall or remember as fast as we want to. Our memory fades. We, we stay frustrated for too long at a, at a seemingly simple thing. And, and even in some cases, as we grow old, we forget the very ones we love whenever they come and see us. But what does Paul say? What is sown in weakness is raised in power. Instead of a body of decline, we will have a body that can only be described as a dynamic crescendo that is able to work, that is able to think, that is able to run, that is able to eat and glorify in ways, glorify the Lord in ways that we can't even imagine or fathom. Our bodies will be constantly improved. It's the only way I know how to put it. The fourth way that we see in our resurrected bodies is in verses 44 through 47. We see that the resurrected body will be spiritual. The resurrected body will be spiritual. We read earlier in our scripture reading that Adam, the father of all humanity, he had the breath of life literally breathed into him by God. Um, and in some translations, it's this idea of animation. So what God did is he formed Adam from the dust and then God breathed this life into him. And that's when he became a living creature. And as we see, Adam, even without the presence of the Holy Spirit, he was given a body that glorified God. And he was meant to be a person who was able to continue to cultivate the creation. He, he was meant to help creation flourish, especially his wife Eve. We see that, right? That's why he so uh, inexplicably declares in our scripture reading this, this morning, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He, he's saying to his beloved, oh, this is the thing that God has given me to help make me cultivate and make it flourish the most. As we know, though, Adam's sin causes all of us now to really struggle to accomplish this creation mandate that he gave to Adam. The mandate that God gave to Adam to uh, fill the earth and multiply and, and to, and to uh, let the ground flourish because of his presence there, he's failed at it and we have as well. Meaning that even his relationship with Eve is fractured because of sin. But as Paul makes this contrast from the first Adam to the last Adam, Jesus, he is causing us to see that this last Adam he gives us spiritual life. This is not to say that God didn't give Adam a spirit or a soul. Adam had a spirit. He wasn't just a robot that walked around, beep, boop, beep, boop. He wasn't like that at all. But left to Adam's own devices, the spirit of first Adam was rebellion. 
and sin. The last Adam, he is a life-giving spirit. He fulfills and cultivates and makes flourish what Adam was meant to do. He is able to give life. And as he says of himself in the Gospel of John, he is able to give life abundantly to those who trust in him. Jesus speaks of himself in this way in John 5.21. He says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Paul is saying, just as God animated life into Adam, Jesus animates or breathes life into those who have faith in him through the Holy Spirit. We are right now spiritual bodies. And we will be spiritual even more so in the resurrection because of this reality of what the Holy Spirit gives us. The Holy Spirit gives us as Jesus breathes life into us. He gives us eternal life with the Father through himself. And this will be realized forever in heaven. You and I know this, right, Christian? Jesus gave us eyes to see that he was lovely, that we could trust in him with our whole lives. And yet at the same time, we don't see him. And there's going to be a day where us in our spiritual bodies will see the one who gave us spiritual breath. The natural will give way to the spiritual. The last thing that we see uh, in the resurrection body in verses 48 through 49 is that the resurrection body will be like Jesus' body. It will be like Jesus' body. Paul goes on to say in verse 48, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Ultimately, this is the answer that Paul wants to give for the question of, well, what kind of bodies do they come? Our resurrected bodies will become and exist in the same manner that Jesus' resurrected body appeared to his disciples. While we now bear the image of the man of dust, we will bear the image of the one who is already resurrected, who is already imperishable, who is already glorious, powerful, and spiritual. We will bear his resemblance, friends. We will become what Jesus already is. And I think in light of that, I have just one question. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? Well, two applications, and then we'll be done. To the unbeliever, I wonder if, if, as you read along and hear me explain this idea of a bodily resurrection, do you recognize the shortfall, the shortcomings of your earthly body? The reality for all of us is that our bodies are decaying, and they will die. That's the truest thing I can say here this morning. You will die. You may live and exist trying to prevent that decaying death, or maybe you live in such a way knowing that you might as well do whatever you want just because you're going to die anyway. Trying to just, it's inevitable, so whatever. In either case, in either end of the spectrum, you're just living for today, and that's it. 
You either live in a worried frantic trying not to die or you live in careless selfishness denying the inevitable. And, and not to be too unkind, but both of those things, they seem so hopeless. They seem so hopeless. Existence like that in either case, it cannot settle you because whether or not you like it, you're, it's going to happen, right? You will die. Delay or deny as much as you want there's a shortcoming. There's a shortfall in that kind of living. So not only is there a shortfall in your body, there's a shortfall in your kind of living. Friend, what I want you to know is for Christians, our understanding of a bodily resurrection, it gives us an incredible hope to live for today in such a way that we don't need to worry about delaying our death or denying its reality. Sure, we don't want to die. We don't want to suffer. But we don't have to totally deny or not ever embrace it at all. We actually know, as Paul says, the natural thing, death, it gives way to the spiritual. Friend, what hope do you have? We can look forward and have hope in death knowing that we will be raised bodily in such a way that our eternal existence will be perfected. This life is not the end of all things for us, friend. And we hope that you would want to partake in what Paul describes here bodily. I mean, I'm hoping that whenever we were running through those categories of the resurrected body that you felt the weight of the opposite. And if you want to talk about how to have a resurrected body and, and why your body is corrupted by sin, come and talk to me, come and talk to Joel, come and talk to any of the elders. We would love to share the gospel with you to let you know that you also can partake in this resurrected body. For my brothers and sisters this morning, I hope you can see what you have to look forward to in this passage. It's a great thing. I could give us a litany of instructions for how this resurrected body can motivate us in, in different ways to live differently or perhaps change things about how we use or treat our bodies. I'm going to let you deal with that in your life groups and, and at lunch uh, this afternoon. But I believe more than that, we are meant to read a passage like this and we're meant to be in awe. Truthfully, trying to preach a passage like this, it's hard. I'm trying to describe something that is somewhat indescribable. I'm trying to describe what only one person has experienced up to this point. What Jesus does for us in the resurrection, it's, it's indescribable. Our salvation that God gives us is incredible. He saves us from sin. He turns away God's wrath. He gives us reconciliation back to the Father. And He gives us grace to live for the, today. Jesus gave us all of that. And we could stop there. And, and truthfully, we, we should be satisfied knowing that we don't have any animosity toward God the Father. Knowing that God gives us a hope. Knowing that we don't have to suffer the punishment of sin. We could stop there and just be satisfied. But Jesus gives us more grace. Grace upon grace, as the Apostle John says. To know that we will have not just peace with our Father. To know that we will never have to face the wrath of God's condemnation. But to know that we will have an eternity. An eternity to live with Him in bodies that He gives us through the Holy Spirit. Bodies that are imperishable.
Bodies that are glorious, powerful, spiritual, and like his. Bodies that even in their resurrected state will drop down on grateful, glorified knees. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the reality that you will resurrect our bodies. And so, God, I pray that that would give us hope to live for today and hope to know that for those that we have seen be sown into the ground, to know that they will be raised in power. God, we love you and we thank you and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.